Thank you for listening to this sermon from Goodwill Church, located in New York's Hudson Valley. Goodwill Church is on a mission to be a hub of revival in the Northeast and beyond. For more information about our church, please visit goodwillchurch.org. Now, here's the sermon. I'm going to make an assumption as we begin that everyone here has participated in or attended a wedding. Is that a safe assumption? And, of course, because we've all done it at least a little bit, and as you probably imagine, I've done it a lot, um, we all know that weddings are something that we appreciate. They're a beautiful event of great significance. We have some semblance of that. We also know that, man, they are cumbersome. There is a lot of planning. In fact, it, would, it could probably be said that in life, there are few things that require more planning. It, it's why sometimes you plan a wedding even years in advance. Exactly. <laughs> it, it's, it's overwhelming. And, you know, I bet I could sit here and just sort of throw some things out. I bet you guys could think of just this endless list of things that you, you have to consider. Once you decide that you're going to get married, you've got to think about things like where you're going to get married and who's going to marry you. That's a really important one, by the way. No, just. And you've got to think about like, um, who you're going to invite. Oh, the guest list. Ooh. Are you going to invite Uncle Harry? Do we really need to do that? And then once you do, you've got to figure out where you're going to have the venue. Where's the reception going to be? And then you have to do the seating chart. Anybody ever do one of those? Well, you know, there's a problem with them, and they don't get along, so we can't sit them together, and oh my gosh, that's brutal. No, you're all looking at me like you're not sure. Yeah. You have to think about the food, and you have to think about the cost, and you have to think about the guests or the gift registry, and this doesn't even get to things like who is going to be the maid of honor and who's going to be the best man and how many bridesmaids are we going to have and how many groomsmen are we going to have and what color are the dresses that the bridesmaids have to wear and are the, are the groomsmen going to match to the groom or not? Oh my gosh. And all of that pales next to the dress. Because the dress matters more than anything else. It will be the single most expensive garment that you wear, hopefully, once. And it is no simple thing. In fact, not only do you wear the dress once, but before you put that dress on, you have like a dress rehearsal a hairdress rehearsal, and a makeup rehearsal. You have to, like, test it out beforehand and make sure that it all works, and the matching shoes, and you have to have the bridesmaids to carry the train behind you, because that's practical. And, you know, that's it. so you have to do all of that, and then you have a flower girl who precedes the pathway with flowers. All of that. I mean, it's a lot. And with all of the differences that do come in weddings, it's been my experience... Um, and I have a unique and very literally specific and unique vantage point because I'm looking out at everything as the day unfolds during the service time. And it always starts with me and the groomsmen and the groom. They're up front 
and he's nervous, and I'm trying to calm him down, and I can just tell that he's trying to figure it all out and remain calm. And uh, the, the groomsmen will begin to usher in the guests, and there's music playing. By the way, I didn't even ask about that. Who are the musicians going to be? You're going to get a DJ or a band? Who's going to do the photography? Forgot all that list. But at any rate, you have the mu music playing, and the groomsmen are bringing in guests, the guests of honor, the mother and father of the groom, the mother of the bride, if it's a very traditional wedding, because the father will walk the bride down the aisle. Guests of honor up front, and they begin to, to fill in the pews back, back, back. And at a certain point, you begin to see some bridesmaids show up. They're flooding around in the back, and that means we know the bride is here, and we should be starting soon. And it's only been 45 minutes past the start time, so we're good. And eventually what you get is, is a, a bridesmaid or, a, a, or maybe the maid of honor will poke her hand through the back of the church, the back doors, with a, a cue. There's some hand signals between the, the bridesmaids and the, the best man or the groomsmen that no one else but me and the groomsmen can see. It's usually like this, which means five minutes. Five minutes and she'll be ready. And ten minutes later you get, which means in five minutes she'll be ready again. And then you get one or two more of those. And then finally you know it's ready. And then what happens is everything gets quiet. And the music changes. And with the cue of the new music, everyone does what? Stands up and turns around to give all of their attention to the bride. Why? Because as she walks down that aisle, she is being presented, as Paul says of the church, spotless. She is coming out in all of her radiant and glorious beauty. And she is to be displayed as such. And it is a picture of Christ and the church. Now we've come to a rather interesting and joyful and hopeful time in the book of Revelation at the end of Scripture. This week, in chapter 21, and then after a two-week break, because we'll be, we'll be having a break for Martin Luther King Day, and then for Right to Life Day uh, in the next two weeks, and then we'll finish up in chapter 22. But we have a unique time here as we open up to chapter 21. You may recall last week we looked at judgment, final judgment. Pretty stark stuff. But it ushers us into a period in Scripture that we haven't seen since the opening chapters of Genesis. Namely, a period that has no sin. It's kind of a unique dynamic. Scripture is, is kind of bookended with the periods of no sin. In between is all the sin and the plan of God, uh, to his redemptive plan, unfolded throughout history to restore and redeem his people. And to kill and destroy the enemy, which is sin and death. That has been accomplished by the end of chapter 20. And so when we get to chapter 21, we are seeing this new thing, this time, this new heavens and new earth. And we're seeing a couple of interesting things. In fact, when we read through this chapter, which I'm going to do in a minute, we're, when we read through it, we're, we're, we, we would do well to ask the question, well, what exactly are we being shown here? Well, we're being shown, are we being shown a holy city, New Jerusalem? Yep, we are. Are we being shown a temple city? And when I say that, I don't mean a city with a temple in it. I mean a temple that is the city. 
Yes, we are. Are we being shown the bride? Yes, we are. It's not one specific or literal image. It is a combination of images from several vantage points that speak to you and I as the bride, as the holy city, as the place where God himself dwells with his people. And so here's what I want to do. I want to give you a list of five details of what I'm calling the bride temple city. So it's not one thing. It's kind of this, this combination in this image. And you'll see that as we read through it. But I want to kind of put these five things in front of you to think about as we read through the passage. Things to look for, details, traits about this bride city that are significant and, and high, are highlighted in the passage. The first one is its purity. And I say it because it's a she, but it's also a city. So its purity or her purity, its beauty is number two. Radiant and glorious beauty. Number three, it's citizenship. This is an important part of that. Very important part of the city. Number four, it's immensity and impenetrability. That is, a, that is its security. It's ultimate and absolute secure. Or absolutely secure, I should say. And then number five, it's fulfillment of the promises of Emmanuel, God with us through this idea of tabernacle or temple. God dwelling with his people. All five of these things are part of the text, and I want to draw them out to you as we walk through it. But let me begin by reading it to you, and, and let me encourage you to listen with this idea in mind. We're being shown a new heavens and a new earth with a holy city who is the bride and is itself the temple of God. Listen to these words. John writes, in the wake of the judgment, final judgment, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he was seated on the throne and said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels, who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues, and spoke to me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit 
to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper with the city while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundation of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth, fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, the eleventh jacathin, the twelfth amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city had no need of sun or a moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Almighty God, we come before you as we do every week in this time in our worship service after reading your word to begin by acknowledging that it is your word and to thank you for it and to acknowledge that we are dependent on your spirit to shed light on your word that we would understand, but not just understand, but apply to live in accordance to your word, to pray in accordance to your word, to be changed by your word. May, as, may our time now be a time where we think and feel, where we consider and apply our hearts and our minds to the hearing and considering of your word, and may it be worshipful to you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. So, we have these five categories as a way of us to look at these passages, and we'll just walk through it, and I'll try and highlight them. Keeping in mind the whole time, what we're looking at is not one or another thing, but it's the vantage point of the bride, the holy city, the temple city, the new heavens and the new earth. We begin with these words, which we just read, and I won't read through them all, but John has the next vision. 
after the final judgments, and it begins with these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And that really is kind of an echo, a hint at how that comes about, comes from the judgment passages that we looked at last week after God deals with Satan and throws him in the lake of fire and sulfur. We read this in verse 11 of chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne, and we've seen many images of the throne and the throne room throughout Revelation. Again, verse 20, or 11 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And so it's a little bit of a hint about the old earth and old sky, or the old earth and the old heavens falling away, and now we have the new heavens and the new earth for the whole for the first earth or heaven and earth had passed away and it notes this and the sea was no more and in in the in the hebrew world the sea was a a picture of chaos the enemies of god came out of that it was a place of fear um, and the only other picture we really see of the sea in revelation comes from the throne room pa- passages in chapters four and five where the sea in front of the throne room is calm and clear like glass no chaos in it and here there's just no sea at all and what do we see John says I saw the holy city New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared as a bride adorned for her husband it's a city and it's the bride it's us kind of remarkably I heard a loud voice from the throne room saying this behold the dwelling place of god is with man he will dwell with them and they will be his people and god himself will be with them as their god now that is emmanuel god with us uh, that, that that finds expression in in the the temple motif throughout scripture the temple is placed in the midst of god's people so that god can be in the midst of his people but that phrase actually is common in Scripture too. I will be their God and they will be my people is a declaration of the covenant that God makes to establish and cultivate the relationship that he intends with his people. That kind of language, that motif is repeated over and over and over again in Scripture and it is echoed here as Revelation does. Remember what we said at the beginning of this, 70% of Revelation is Old Testament illusion. This is Old Testament illusion from any number of different places. So he articulates this from heaven, and we're told he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is a very common and popular verse. We're familiar with this, and we we, we often hear it at funerals and when we're grieving. Uh, But this is not simply tears or death, although it is that. But this is the declaration that the curse is now dealt with, which is what is the curse? The sin has a consequence, death sickness and death and brokenness in a broken world that's the old created order now we're in the new and that is done that's a future reality for us but that's how that looks like that's it no pain no tears no death no mourning no crying why for the former things have passed away this is the new heavens and the new earth the new created order fully restored and that that's a that's the picture that john is seeing and he's trying to describe for us and then we get something that's a little bit unique the one seated on the throne speaks god speaks here and what does he say i'm making all things new and so that's the the full clarity of what we're we're, what we're seeing here this is new former things have passed away behold i am making all things new 
Isn't that a little bit of the echo of Paul? when He says, the old has gone, behold, the new has come. We're new creatures in Christ, and the fullness of that is what we look forward to in glory expressed here, not just in heaven generically, but we as the bride. Behold, I'm making all things new. And then it says, uh, just for emphasis, hey, I know you've been writing all this down, John. Write this down. Like, just, a, just a, get that in there. These words are trustworthy and true. And he said, it is done. It is done is an echo of Jesus on the cross. It is finished. It is an echo of the work of God from the beginning of creation, from the time of the fall to the fulfillment of all his redemptive purposes. It is done. Who speaks this? The one who is the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega. And here's what he says, and this is striking. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, this is interesting because there's a couple of things that are striking about this. One is, this really is something, the the, the idea of thirsting and conquering are are themes that we saw way back in chapters 2 and 3 with with the letters to the churches. And back then, we saw that here's the church in struggle, the church broken, the church in the old created order, the church militant, the church embattled, the church struggling with sin, And this idea of thirsting and conquering that was a promise that God made that would come with great reward. And on the other side of Revelation, in the new created order, the church here in glory sees that. And these are the descriptive characters of that. This is what makes up the citizenship of this holy city, this bride, those who thirst. And it's not just from Revelation. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness is is the idea. And, and this idea of the one who conquers will have this heritage echoes back to what we saw before about this language of I will be your God, you will be my people. I will be his God. And notice what it says, not just my people, but he will be my son. Not just citizenships, but children. And of course you might say, well, is that sons and daughters? Is that what that's supposed to be? Some translations might say that. But here's what I would say to that. I know I'm probably going to get in trouble, but I'm gonna, it's never stopped me before. So, There is a sense in which the church is, is brought into God as sons of God. And a sense, which we see in this text, where the church as a whole is the bride. So we need to, re, we, we need to reorient how we think about gender the way Scripture does it. What does Paul say in Galatians about the age to come? He says, there'll be neither Jew nor Gentile. There'll be neither male nor female. It's not about gender as much as it is about sonship and your identity as the bride. Both are true. Now here's the, the, the contrast, those the, the characteristic traits that are drawn for those who do not belong in the kingdom. They are not the ones who thirst. They are not the ones who conquer and receive this gift, this profound heritage of having God as your God and being called his sons. Instead, this describes all of these different traits, the cowardly and the faithless and the detestable and murderers and the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, Liars, their portion will be 
in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is not a revisit to judgment. This has already happened. This is just a contrast to those who thirst and who conquer and receive this profound heritage. So, we're getting ready to take a look, a long look, at the glorious and radiant beauty of the bride. And, or a tour, if you will, of the city. Whenever you get a tour of the city, you usually get a tour guide. Everybody been, like, travel to a, a famous city and, and pay the money to get a tour guide? How, how many people say, oh, I'll, go, I'll figure it out on my own? Show of hands. How many say, well, no, we'll pay to get a tour because I don't want to miss anything? Any, any of those? Well, John's getting a tour guide. And, he, and it says, so, so then one came, uh, then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. And he says to me, uh, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. So there's that, that image again. Now, here's what I want you to see. Here is the moment that we always talk about, I always talk about. I, I always come to the table and talk about this as this foretaste of the marriage banquet feast. Here it is. The day has arrived. The, the uniting of the bride, which is the church, with the bridegroom, which is Jesus. But it's also a city. And you're going to get a tour. And the tour guide's kind of scary. Like, this is the guy who's going to show me the city? The angel that just executed final judgment with the seven plagues and the seven bulls? That's the one? Yep. And what does that tell us? Well, one thing it can tell us is that the angels of God are charged to execute both the justice and the mercy of God. It also tells us that if you're on the tour and you know this is the guy who just executed judgment, you're paying attention. You're not falling asleep on the tour. Because <laughs> not only is he that guy, but as we're going to read in a little while, he has a long rod of gold, a measuring rod. It's supposed to measure, but I'm imagining if he's one of those tour guys, he might, you know, kind of give you a little if you're falling asleep. But anyway, this is a striking thing. We have this tour guide, and he says, I want to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. As if there was any room to be confused about that. But notice what he does. He uses that language. I'm going to show you the bride, the wife of the lamb, and then he carries him away in the spirit to a great high mountain. And by the way, I made some notes in the study sheet here. Uh, the Old Testament prophet, the prophets in the Old Testament commonly refer to the eschatological Jerusalem, the, the age to come kingdom, as being set on a great high mountain. So this also echoes prophetic language. This is the way we see that. He takes him to a great high mountain and shows him what? The holy city. Well, I thought we were looking at the bride. Yep, you're looking at the bride. And you're looking at the holy city. Coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Anybody know what jasper looks like? Anybody have a sense of what jasper looks like? I, a couple of you shaking your heads. What does it look like? I'm sorry? It's green. This jasper, jasper is clear as crystal. Isn't that interesting? This is the first of a couple of hints about how it is that John is limited in his vocabulary and he's trying to describe using old creation language that which is new 
Jasper isn't clear, but this one is. It's clear as crystal, which speaks to its radiant beauty. It's remarkable. It's distinct. It's otherworldly. And the city has a, a great high wall, 12 gates, and, the 12, uh, and, and at the gates, 12 angels, and on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Three on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west, which tells us a number of things. Number one, the city's a cube. Guess what else is a cube? The tabernacle and the temple. It's an exact cube. Cube, cube, right? So there's an echo of that there. But we also have the, the representation of the people of God in the Old Covenant, the names of the 12 tribes which is a reflection of the people of God in the Old Covenant. They, too, are part of its citizenship. We've seen a little bit of the, of the cities and the bride's purity and beauty, but now the third thing we note is the citizenship. Here it is. We're told about them, and then the walls of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Here's the people of the New Covenant. And so what we get here is that the citizenship of this city is vast and full and multifaceted, multinational, every tribe, tongue, and nation. The 144,000 and the great multitude that defies numbering. All together here. All the entirety of the people of God. That's a lot of people. How are they going to fit in? Well, it's a really big city. Bigger than anything you've ever seen even though we want to see that and also recognize that it's not a literal thing. Here's what we get. The one who spoke to me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And this conveys a couple of things, that it's really, really big, so all the people of God can be there, and it's impenetrable. The people of God are utterly, absolutely, eternally secure. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia, its length and width and height are equal. Now, maybe you have a, a translation of your Bible that takes the word stadia and translates that into a modern number. That's not really what we want to do with numbers in Revelation. All the numbers have significance. Three speaks to completeness. Four speaks to completeness. Seven speaks to completeness. Ten and twelve and, and variations on twelve, which we see here. But if you were to take a moment just to say, well, what exactly does that mean? Twelve thousand stadia? You might have a footnote in your Bible. That translates to about 1,380 miles. And notice this cubical city is let's just say 1,380 mi 1, miles uh, in its length and in its width and in its height. That's a really big city. Out of curiosity, I did a little research and discovered that the, the um, International Space Station is 250 miles above the Earth. 1,380 miles. Now, again, not literal, but it's meant to convey completeness. This is immense. That's immense in our world today. Imagine for John. That's just beyond comparison. No army is going to climb that wall. 
And he measured the wall 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So not only are they ridiculously tall, but they're really thick. When you think about really secure concrete wall, how thick is it? Like, what's, what's overdoing it? 18 inches? I think sometimes in the White House, they're like five or six feet thick of concrete. That's reinforced with steel. This is over 200 feet thick, if you're going to do the literal translation. Secure, immense, impenetrable. That's the picture that you want to get here. But not just secure, immense, and impenetrable, but beautiful. And an echo of the temple. The walls, the wall was built with jasper. The city was pure gold, like clear glass. So let's ask the question again. How many have seen gold? Anybody see gold like clear glass? If you have a piece like that, don't tell anybody. <laughs> That's your retirement plan. Like, this is remarkable. Gold isn't clear as glass, but that's the point. This is otherworldly in its beauty. It's set apart and striking in its beauty, but also has echoes of the temple. So the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, and it lists these jewels, and I will not attempt to mispronounce them a second time for you because I've already done that once. Um, but here's, here's what we want to take from that. These stones are really part of Aaron's breastplate, the priestly breastplate. So this is the sacred garment that the priest would wear when he entered into the temple, into the Holy of Holies. So we're seeing not just beauty and radiance in the bride, but an echo of the temple, the place where God dwells with his people, which is exactly what we read in the opening verses of 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. Verse 3. And so this, this temple imagery is here. And all of these stones are listed. The breastplate and various parts of the temple have these stones, but particularly the priestly breastplate. The beauty goes on, though. There's 12 gates in the city. And we're told that the 12 gates were, were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. Now remember, the gate is a gate in a wall that's, if you're going to be literal, almost 1,400 miles tall. That is a really big singular pearl. If you don't have a piece of clear gold and you have one of these pearls, you're also set. But of course, there's metaphor here. You can't have a pearl that's 1,400 miles tall. It's just, it's meant to picture something that's otherworldly, remarkable, and astonishing in its beauty. And the street of the city was pure gold, again, like transparent glass. And lastly, we see no temple in the city. But I thought it was a temple city. Well, it says, For the temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. Normally, when you are in a city and in Jerusalem, you would always look for where the temple is, which would be in the center of the city. 
as good and faithful Christians, I know that the first thing that you look for whenever you enter a new city is where the church is, right? Yeah. That's the first thing you want to know from the tour guide. Where's a good Bible-believing church? Where's the steeple? Well, there is none here. Not because it doesn't exist, but because the entire thing is the temple. It's not a city with a temple in it, but a temple city. And it's a temple city because God is the temple. And because he dwells with his people there. The marriage union between the bride and the lamb. Bound. And what is the imagery of marriage? One flesh. They're one. There's no mediation anymore between God and man. No need for that because there's no sin. No light is needed because God is light. No sun or moon for the glory of God gives its light. And the lamp is the lamb. And notice what it says here. And by its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night. So much of wickedness and evil happens under what? Cover of darkness. No more darkness. Absolute, utter security. It's one thing to picture these walls as immensely tall and crazy thick. It's another to say, this is so secure the gates can just be open all the time because there is no night. They, the kings and the nations, will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But we close this vision with this. Nothing unclean will ever enter into it. I shouldn't say the vision this chapter, I should say. Nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. We're going to pick this back up in two weeks, but let me just read you the opening verses of chapter 22 because that actually also is part of the description of this city. And, and before we do it, let me ask you a question. How many people would count themselves as city people? Raise your hand. There you go. We are in New Paltz. Like, you know, so how many more country people? Right. Well, guess what? This city has the best of both. Look what it says here in 22. Then the angel showed me the river. There's a river in the city? We're not talking about the rivers, the three rivers that surround Pittsburgh, because that's not exactly what we have in mind here. It's a little nicer than that. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. The river through the street, and on either side of the river, trees. Specifically, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit. So 12 is complete, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb of God will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. What's left and we'll look at this in two weeks, is that final description of the city and the, and the closing of the letter. But what we have is the completion of the destruction of sin and this beautiful bride, temple, holy city that is us in all of its purity 
in all of its beauty with its vast citizenship and its absolute security and as a picture of Emmanuel, God with us as we are one with him in the temple that is him. This is our heavenly hope. This is what we, what we long for. This is what gets us up in the morning. And you're all going, yeah, that's what gets me up in the morning. Well, maybe not. But it should be what gets you up in the morning. It should be what drives you. It should be what helps you to see that this life, as the scripture says, is but a vapor. And this is what awaits us for all eternity. And the new heavens and the new earth. This is what grounds us. This is our hope. I'm going to pray and we're going to come to the table as we do. And as we do, we know that we have a foretaste of that hope in the table. John gives a vision of what is still future for us. But as I say each week, this table is a foretaste of that marriage banquet feast. It's a little bitty foretaste of that beautiful meal of celebration of the union between the people of God and their Savior and God himself. As they're passing out the elements, let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this picture in all of its beauty and purity and all of its majesty and all of its temple imagery and all of its security and joyful hope of being with you and you being with us as our God and us being your people. That is our hope. But as we close our time in the service, we come back to the now, and in the now, we come to this table, a picture of the work of the gospel, a foretaste of the heavenly marriage banquet feast, the supper of the Lamb. We pray now that you would take this cup and this bread and you would set them apart for a holy purpose that they might become to our faith your body broken and your blood shed for the forgiveness of our sins we ask this in your name Jesus thank you again for listening to today's sermon for more resources and information about Goodwill Church visit goodwillchurch.org God bless